Hi, everyone. This is Mary Beth Hunter with the Better Conflict Bulletin's podcast, The Transformers, where we speak with people who are working on making the American conflict better. We'll include peace builders who are mediating difficult conversations between red and blue, teachers training their students in conflict skills, journalists who are committed to being trusted by all sides, and technologists asking what platforms can do to help. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Jacqueline Pfeffer-Merrill, an academic and director of the Campus Free Expression Project. This is a conversation about the current state of free speech at our colleges and universities and the ways in which we can speak calmly about it. Jacqueline Pfeffer-Merrill, I am so glad to have you here with us. Well, I'm just delighted to be here for this uh, Transformers discussion and really want to congratulate you and your partner organization, the Better Conflict Newsletter. I really appreciate that notion of allowing for open inquiry and conflict, but making it better. Well, you're one of the ones who are out there in the field doing it, so that's what we want to hear about. So first of all, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got involved in conflict transformation? I was a college professor for 11 years at St. John's College in Annapolis, the so-called Great Books College, and before that at the College of William and Mary. And I'm now involved in higher education policy work, but I, I really come to it with my perspective of a liberal arts college professor and seeing that success in the collegiate mission of preparing the next generation for citizenship and leadership and and educating them, as well as advancing scholarship and knowledge on college campuses by the faculty scholars, really depends on open exchange and freedom of expression and academic freedom. Tell us about how you became involved with the Campus Free Expression Project. To do that, I really need to talk a little bit about the Bipartisan Policy Center. So the Bipartisan Policy Center is a Washington DC think tank. It is the only organization in Columbia that has the word bipartisan in its name. And bipartisanship is a real challenge these days. And about five years ago, almost now, two of the members of the Bipartisan Policy Center Council, Governor Jim Douglas, a former Republican governor of Vermont, and Governor Chris Gregg, former Democratic governor of Washington State, who had been involved in a number of projects at BC, including its work and task force on higher education financing and student outcomes, said one of the other real challenges on college campuses is freedom of expression. And it's really mission critical for organizations like the Bipartisan Policy Center to support colleges and universities in their essential work in preparing the next generation to have conversations across principal disagreement and productive, workable compromises, even if people don't agree on all the principles behind the various policy solutions that may be pragmatically achieved. So the board and leadership here at BC took up Governor's Gregor Douglas's suggestion, and I'm really happy that BPC wanted to pursue this from a real collegiate mission, liberal standpoint, rather than really focusing on the kind of a First Amendment legalistic approach to these issues. So I was, as I said, a former liberal arts professor, and they brought me on board to head up this project. It sounds like this is a natural outgrowth of a bipartisan project, because you have college students who are taught to speak constructively with one another and how to handle conflict that would then make approaches 
easy down the road. The students who are on campus today are tomorrow's leaders. Some of them are going to be elected leaders. Some of them are going to be journalists and policy leaders of other sorts. Some are just going to be leaders of their local PTAs. And that means having to work together. We have in our country today, a genuine civic skills deficit, and I think a crisis level deficit. That's really the work that we focus on in BPC generally, and, and certainly in our free expression project. You describe yourself on your website as working to restore open discourse on college campuses in order to create independent thinkers and engage citizens. So how is that actionable? How do you take that into actually helping students do that? The work that we do is is in partnership with collegiate leaders, presidents, student affairs leaders, faculty. People in Washington, D.C. can't tell people in their various communities very easily how exactly to implement a change in their communities. Likewise, at BPC, we can't change college campuses directly. We're really working with them through our Academic Leaders Task Force, co-chaired by Governors Douglas and Greg, who suggested the project at BC, and with the rest of the task force, which is another 10 people. Altogether, the task force is a dozen academic leaders, and it includes six college presidents or recent college presidents, a vice president of diversity, equity, inclusion, a faculty member, recent college graduate who's now COO of Bridge USA and a, and a leader of a community organization who's also served as a university trustee at a flagship public campus to try to analyze the challenges to an, an open inquiry culture on campuses during this polarized time and make recommendations for presidents, for faculty, for trustees, for student affairs leaders. We have since then been going across the country in symposia and campus visits talking about these recommendations and how campuses can tailor their own campus. Because I think it's really important the programs and curricula be tailored to the particular history and culture and community on every campus. So you'd have a different approach for Berkeley versus Liberty University. Yeah, I don't even sure if it's the student attitudes towards free speech and we can and you know welcome talking about student attitudes towards freedom of expression because on every campus there's very strong support for freedom of expression amongst by far the greater number of students but there are, are ways to make these principles seem organic to a particular community. So, you know, work with a Catholic Jesuit college that has a lot of, in its freedom of expression statement, a lot of discussion of principles about how it is that we engage with others. And you know, it's the Christian charge about how is it that we see others. We worked with Metro State University of Denver, and that is a very diverse public campus where most people are commuting to campus. And that has a different community. And they really wanted their freedom of expression statement to kind of acknowledge diversity of their community. University of Maryland is one of the freedom of expression statements that is cited in our task force. I love how it situates its freedom of expression statement within a value statement about what is the university about, because freedom of expression is a means to the end of a campus community, which is to disseminate advanced knowledge. I wanted to touch on something you mentioned earlier. You have a link to a 
poll that cites that 65% of students agree strongly that their campus climate prevents people saying what they'd like. And then the same study says that over 20% of students want to prohibit bias or speech. So how do you get the 65% and the 20% to work together? You have put your finger, Mary Beth, on the absolutely critical challenge, the, the real paradox that there is, you mentioned that 20% oppose some sort of speech. So let me offer some further context. You ask students if they support the First Amendment or if they support students being exposed to a whole variety of viewpoints or if they favor free and open exchange on college campuses, there's overwhelming support for those principles. The Heterodox Academy, a study that came out in early June, found that 87.4% very strongly favor free and open exchange on college campuses. Wow. And at the same time, one third of students favor speech codes, a quarter favor disinviting speakers, one out of five favor limiting expression of political viewpoints that make that seem biased to offensive to some, a same fraction of one fifth oppose allowing a group that supports gun rights to be organized as a student group. One out of six oppose handing out pamphlets with a, with a Christian message on them. All of of us who are thinking about freedom of expression on college campuses, and all of us who are thinking about the crisis of open exchange and conversation across difference in our country more generally, really need to be focused on this paradox. How is it that there's such strong support on one hand for open inquiry and hearing different viewpoints. And at the same time, there's worry. People say that I can't express my points of view on campus, or at least some others can't express their point of view on campus. That's the paradox that we need to think about. One way of thinking about that paradox is to understand that we need to be thinking about perhaps two groups on a college campus. The overwhelming number who say that they want to have exposure to all kinds of points of view and have the open debate and the small censorious minority which has a tremendously outsized impact on chilling speech on campus that are willing to engage in call-outs to shame their colleagues on social media and to use the heckler's veto and i think that minority accounts for why so many people feel that they can't share their views openly on campus. It sounds like there's a lot more to this than I want to say what I want to say and what I think, but you need to shut up. It's a lot more complex than that. I want to kind of cast that question in a very small number on campus are willing to use these sorts of tactics, such as the heckler's veto. But because of the power of social media today and the, the way in which social media is able to create a firestorm can be used to socially shame and ostracize students on campus. There only has to be a few on campus who are willing to use those tactics to make many people across the political spectrum say, gosh, maybe it's safer for me not to say what I'm thinking about this. It sounds like you are focusing more on developing skills rather than saying this is what your policy should say. What kind of skills do you think students should be developing to support what your mission is? That skills question is excellent. And I think students arrive on college campuses today without those skills and people don't have the skills to really listen to those who have different points of view. And so why would one think that a person, young person matriculating on a college 
college campus would have those skills. They see politicians, they see celebrities, indeed rewarded for the opposite, for sometimes being willing to call out other people. Students today, even more than was the case a generation ago, have grown up in neighborhoods where their next door neighbors are much more likely to have similar political views, to read the same news sources, to have the same socioeconomic status. It used to be that if you joined a, a, a Girl Scout troop or a Boy Scout troop, you meet people who had a lot of different backgrounds. Now people are the same as high school, any of these civic organizations. So um, we're, at, we're at a particularly challenging time. We have students who are growing up in more homogeneous neighborhoods. Students who are arriving on campus now have just come out of the pandemic where they were, in many cases, less able to socialize during their high school years and get just get practiced at even very positive in-person interactions. And they're at a time when social media is able to be weaponized. But even a classroom comment, I'll come back to that in just a moment. So they, they, students are in a more challenging time. They're arriving with fewer skills. And so the the task force really recommends focusing on skills of knowing the value of freedom of expression, how it's been used as a progressive force in our history, having verbal strategies to create the moment for grace and listening, to be able to be more empathetic with those who have different points of view, and for faculty and, and student affairs leaders also to have those skills to create those spaces in the classroom and on the quad and in the dorms for students to, to have that kind of conversation. It's really helpful for students even to be able to say something like, gosh, I don't see it that way. Can you tell me how you came to that conclusion? And having a bunch of little, little sentences or questions like that can help people give others, give themselves a moment to process what somebody has said with which they might strongly disagree and gives the other person a chance to explain him or herself. You're also involved with freshman orientation. And I was interested to find that some universities and colleges are now integrating what you're talking about right with freshman orientation. I was surprised to find that Purdue, for example, has been doing this for a number of years. You were talking about value statements earlier, and from the start, universities like Purdue are saying, okay, this is how we're going to handle conflict and expressing your opinion on campus. Can you talk a little bit more about grabbing students as they arrive on campus, especially now post-pandemic, and saying, all right, here's how we're going to communicate here? Yeah, Mary Beth, I, I, I love that question because we, you know, the task force was so excited about and glad to make this Like the moment when students arrive on campus is a really critical moment because students are, they're so excited and they're meeting new new friends. And so you can't really thoroughly build up all those skills in a, you know, freshman orientation when you're also telling them, here's where to find the the student doctor's office and here's where the cafeterias are. But it's a unique opportunity for colleges and universities to signal the values that define that campus and the collegiate experience and the what it is that it, students are going to be asked to do in the next four years when they're on a college campus. So the task force recommended including it in, in freshman orientation, and there's a bunch of different ways to do that. Purdue University has been doing this for a number of years, as you said, and they're 
a look on YouTube, it's possible to see at least one of the orientations, and they have some some remarks by leaders. And but the key thing about the Purdue ori- orientation is they have skits. I believe it's three situations: a, a, a classroom situation, a, a quad situation, and one, one a third where they act out some a situation where there's he says something another doesn't like. One of the situations is a what is sometimes called a confrontational evangelist. The classroom situation is something said that it seems that is uncomfortable in the classroom. And then the upperclassmen who are performing the skits act out different ways that the response could happen. And then a panel of faculty and other leaders describe the various responses. Key takeaways for the students are, are at least Two, actually three. One is that just freedom of expression is an important value at, at, at Purdue University, and students are going to expected to be in situations that they will find challenging. Second, that they have choices about how it is that they can respond. If you hear something that's really uncomfortable, you can just walk away from the situation. If it's something you encounter in a quad, you can engage the speaker in a, in a respectful way. So as somebody in that situation as a student, and later when you go graduate, a, a citizen in the public square, you have options and agency about how to respond to speech that you find either incorrect or even genuinely vile. And then, you know, thirdly, it signals that the university is taking on responsibility for helping students build up these skills. There's no reason to think that somebody, you know, finishing high school is going to be ready to handle difficult conversations where they hear views with which they really disagree. And the university has said, our expectation of you on a campus is that you're going to be ready to handle this, but we're here to help you with it. And I, I think that, that that signal from colleges and universities that they're helping students to build up those skills is a, is a really important signal. And other universities have really taken on it themselves to, to say that too. If I could just mention the University of Chicago statement that is so famous as being the first free expression statement of the most recent years says, fostering the ability of members of the university community to engage in such debate and deliberation in an effective and responsible manner is an essential part of the university's educational mission. It's always been true, but in this extremely polarized time, it's especially true that universities take up that charge. Well, you mentioned Purdue's freshman orientation, where they have upperclassmen leading the way and doing the skits and really demonstrating what these skills look like. Can you talk about how important it is to have upperclassmen doing this rather than an outside group or administrators? I think it's really important that students be leaders amongst themselves. Washington University in St. Louis is another example of, I I haven't checked to see what their most recent orientation program, they had an orientation program where it was a common reading program for first year students. And they read Nadine Strassen's book about hate speech and free speech. And those conversations with the first-year students were also led by upperclassmen. And I think that that's one way of students kind of showing leadership amongst themselves. But I think it's also really the number of student groups that are doing this work on their own campus. I may highlight groups like Bridge USA, which now has over 50 chapters 
Were they depolarizing college campuses, not by finding middle grounds, but by finding ways that people and students with different points of view can gather to discuss you know, really challenging topics. Students are already leaders, so we really need to engage them very much. I think it says something that the students are seeing for themselves that this is needed. And again, this isn't a top-down situation where it's imposed and they're seeing the need for this. And I think this is, in a way, a twist on what we saw in the 60s, where we had this protest culture. And now here we're seeing the other side of it. So what happened? Is this just this regular societal change or how did we get here? The 60s were an important moment and we saw lots of student protests and efforts to limit expression on, on campus or some efforts to try to limit expression on campus in a broader society. One thing that I really take from that is you know, people describe a, a crisis of free expression today on campus in a society. I don't think that language is overblown. I do think it is the case that open inquiry is just a threatened value and it's, it's true in our society and it's, it's true on, on too many of our campuses. But the pendulum swung again. Early 20th century when faculty lost their jobs over controversial statements and American Association of University Professors was established to protect faculty academic freedom. And then we, you know, through the McCarthy period and faculty were reported to the House Committee on Un-American Activities and the 60s, you know, Vietnam, civil rights era, there's always time when open expression is more challenged than it is at other times. And so people shouldn't be too discouraged about the present moment. We have lots of resources and lots of leaders on campuses and student leaders, too, who are interested in opening up discourse on campus. How do you answer the challenge that cancel culture doesn't really exists. And it's just a matter of people being held accountable for what they're saying and teaching. If someone came to you with that argument, how would you answer that? I would go back to talking about the collegiate mission. I mean, the purpose of college and university is to prepare young students to be independent thinkers, to allow faculty to advance the horizons of of knowledge. And we just have tremendous evidence that People are not able to test their ideas openly on a campus. And it is not just true of people who are on the most extreme political fringes. So, for example, BBC had a survey, did a survey in collaboration with Morning Consult and found that people are more comfortable in a classroom than they are in social media. There's other surveys that show that. But the Gallup survey that we've mentioned previously said only about half of students are comfortable expressing disagreement with others in the classroom, whether that's an instructor or other students. And interestingly, that's that holding, you know, it's about half students, only half are comfortable, holds across demographic groups. So for men, for women, for students of color, for white students, it's basically only about half. And the classroom should be the place where where faculty are providing guardrails and guidance, where people are testing ideas most vigorously and really stress testing their priors, stress testing the ideas that that others are, are bringing to the conversation. Only half of students are comfortable expressing ideas and half are at least sometimes keeping ideas to themselves. 
That means that every student isn't getting what what they came to college for as a political society. We're depending on colleges to do in our in our pluralistic democracy, which is to prepare people to engage tough ideas and really have a frank and honest discussion about all the serious challenges that are facing us. It's someone's not saying something, and that's probably not healthy. It's, it's definitely not healthy. UNC has done some wonderful research, and I really want to credit University of North Carolina. First at the Chapel Hill campus in 2020, and now eight campuses across the system. They have researchers there, Jennifer Larson, several others who have surveyed the, the open inquiry culture on campuses. And great credit to UNC for making that so, supporting that research, making it so publicly available and showcasing the things that are going well on campuses and the, and the real challenges. And among the real challenges are how social media has an impact on the classroom. In the 2020 survey, 43% of self-identified conservatives, 25% of self-identified moderates, and 10% of self-identified liberals say that they sometimes keep classroom comments to themselves for fear that they will be posted on social media. That speaks to a specific motive, being worried about social media. If basically half the people are keeping their opinions to themselves, sometimes in the classroom, it is eroding the opportunities for success of the collegiate mission to, to make these students independent thinkers and to make them ready for civic leadership. Because they need to know how to ask questions, especially when they don't understand something or aren't sure where a theory or a statement has come from. Mm -hmm. They need to ask questions and they also need to have, they need to have the civic courage to be able to say something when they think no one else in the room is going to agree with them. You just think about the film, 12 Angry Men. It's an important democratic virtue to be able to say something that you think is right, even when no one else is going to agree. And it's an important aspect of that civic courage to be able to stand up when others are being disallowed or discouraged from speaking to say, hold it, I want to hear a little bit more about what my classmate was saying, because I also disagree, but I think maybe he has or she has more to explain and to challenge what you've heard. So to, to say what you think, to stand up for others, to be able to think and to express themselves and to, to, to have the courage to, to challenge a consensus, all those are displays of civic courage of which we need to see more of in our broader society. And that virtue can be cultivated on campuses. It's wonderful to hear that you're also concentrating on how this meets justice. For example, if a mob gets run away with itself, there could be severe consequences. And I think that's something I think a lot of people forget. So hearing that you're impressing that on students, this wonderful idea of civic courage is so great to hear, no matter what the opinion. I think that's what's important here. You have something to say about this, and I'm not sure I understand or I want to hear more. I think that's something that students this age probably need to hear a little bit more of. Yeah, I think I think they do because we don't see it modeled in our broader society. We all need that moment of grace. Like every one of us has had the experience that something didn't come out quite right, or mm -hmm. we want to qualify it, or we want to test out an idea, but we're not really sure. And letting people test out ideas, that's what college should be about. There's kind of a reward for not rocking the boat. But, you know, colleges, universities are an institution that we have had for almost 
millennium exactly to be places where ideas are advanced and you should be able to to raise any idea however radical and that's just a very very unusual institution colleges are really unusual communities and i think and meant to be that way they're meant to be that way and i think um should be a discomforting and disorienting experience to be an, a new person on campus because you are going to be in a setting that is very different from anywhere else any other kind of institution it's really our special kind of institution for challenging ideas. It should feel very stressful to enter that community because you're really being stretched, should really be stretched intellectually. And no wonder it's hard sometimes. But it sounds like you're not just saying, hey, throw them in there, let them figure it out. You're also advocating helping people build the tools and the skills that they need to navigate that. Faculty are modeling how to be questioners. That's the role that faculty are having. All kinds of ways, too, that universities can say, look, speech codes are always on behalf of the status quo. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. freedom of expression is ultimately a liberating and inclusive force. And even helping students to know how freedom of expression was essential to the civil rights movement, to women's suffrage, you know, even to movements today like Black Lives Matter, the Me Too movement. Free speech and freedom of expression is um, an opportunity to challenge the status quo. It's interesting that you mentioned the status quo because it mentions on your website that your staff engages and works with the staff of congressional members to advocate this idea that the universities themselves are best off being a steward of free expression. Could you tell us a little bit about how that happens? Sure thing. As I mentioned, the Academic Leaders Task Force at BPC was chaired by our Two former governors, Jim Douglas and Chris Guaguar of Vermont and, and Washington State, respectively. They, they've been just terrific advocates on this particular question. And obviously, higher education is, is touched on at all levels of government. And we've seen a lot of action around state legislations touching on curricular matters and academic freedom matters. And governors Gregoire and, and Douglas clearly made the case that you know, governors and state legislatures have important oversight roles with regard to public higher education in their states and safeguarding of the significant investment citizens make in those institutions. Academic freedom and curricular matters are fundamentally matters of of campus governance, not matters for state legislatures or executive orders or or other governmental entities to be prescribing how these matters should be handled or proscribing certain topics or methodologies. It's important for campus governance to matter, to prevail in these matters. The other aspect of that is it's important for campus leaders to really think about ways to restore public trust in higher education. You know, we've seen just a general erosion in trust in institutions in our country. Higher education has certainly been impacted by that. You know, Pew data, only half of Americans say that colleges and universities are having a positive effect on the way things are going. That's really a shocking number. There are different reasons people offer when when probed for that. They're worried about costs of college. They're worrying about are campuses really places of open inquiry. But I think 
this question about our campuses really places of open inquiries is a place where institutions have lost trust of people. And so while state legislatures and other governmental entities shouldn't see freedom of expression and academic freedom and curricular matters as part of their, you know, state and federal governance of these institutions, it's also important for higher education leaders to think about how can we, how better can we communicate to our alumni and to the members of our community that we're genuinely true homes to open inquiry. That is a perfect lead into my last question, which I wanted to ask you about this background that you have in the great books method. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that and how that affected your background and your shaping for the position you're in now. Sure. So I well, was a faculty member at St. John's College, the Great Books College. I was on the Annapolis uh, rather than the Santa Fe campus and really being interested in the, the study of, I think, what is often more often called now core texts rather than, than great books. But I think the reason it is connected to the concerns I have in, in the work that I do today and was of, of the curricular matters were of great interest to the task force is that we we can't contextualize our contemporary issues and debates without being able to situate them in the history of our country and how our, our governing institutions work and the broader intellectual tradition we have. Just to give one example, during the pandemic, there were lots of controversies about mask mandates and you know, what were the motives of people on various sides and what were the arguments for that. And I think it's really helpful to be able to, to situate that debate in the context of the discussion between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists and to say in governing a big country like ours that is very diverse, very large, with a lot of different points of view, there has been disagreement for now centuries about what's the role of central government or federal government and even the state governments in, in making these sorts of decisions. And I think when we're better able to situate our controversies and issues today in a broader context, it diffuses some of the anger and the polarization. This is kind of just the latest iteration in a long series of debates in our in our country about the role of government in a very large, geographically large pluralistic democracy. And over these many hundreds of years, people have been on different sides and each side has a long and storied intellectual and political heritage to it that deserves some respect, even if I disagree with the other side of that tradition or the other side in the policy debate that is in front of me today. And if students want to be involved with what you're doing, where should they go to become part of it? That's a terrific question, too. So the Bipartisan Policy Center has interns, and we have spring, summer, and fall interns. And people can learn about that by going to you know Bipartisan Policy Center internships. And it's not just internships in campus free expression, but in, in our health, education policy, energy policy, housing. There's lots of opportunities for students to come for an internship that can be either in-person or hybrid or remote. And I just encourage all of your listeners, too, to visit our website, Campus Free Expression at the Bipartisan Policy Center. And we have a newsletter that we send out once a month with our upcoming events, our monthly what we're reading with top 10 reads that we recommend on Campus Free Expression. 
Jacqueline Pfeffer. Meryl, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your time. Great. Mary Beth Hunter, this has just been terrific. And I wish you and your colleagues all the best in your important work, helping people to have not no conflicts, but better conflicts. That's a wonderful mission. You got it. Thanks so much for doing such a big part of it. Bye-bye for now. Doctor, thanks so much for your time. Come find the Better Conflict Bulletin at betterconflictbulletin.substack.com to subscribe to our free and weekly newsletter, including an edited transcript of today's conversation. If you have any feedback or suggestions for our work, find us on Twitter at better underscore conflict. We appreciate the moments you have spent with us. See you next time. And remember that these kids are going to have to work together.